So we have reached a point of critical juncture in our podcast making, and in this episode, there won't be any instrumental ambient background music because we're talking about the greatest song contest in history. And I'm in conversation with Dr. Paul Jordan, Dr. Eurovision. So we can go wild using Eurovision tracks, and we have. From the heart of Bloomsbury, I'm Boromir Totev, and you're listening to the Pushkin House podcast. Let's do this. I grew up, like most people, watching Eurovision as a kid. And the first year I really remember was 1993. Um, but I've got vague memories of like the late 80s as well. But 93 was the first one that I watched all the way through. And I was watching it, I remember, in my parents' bedroom. And the voting that year was quite close between Ireland and the UK. And I was cheering and I was really, really excited. And uh, then later on, I was very upset because the UK had lost. And they hadn't actually lost by... It wasn't as close as it looked on the TV because actually Ireland had quite a big lead, but they couldn't get um, in touch with the Maltese jury. So it actually did come down to that last vote, even though Ireland, as they ended up being 20-odd points ahead. So um, I was quite upset. And I remember my dad coming up the stairs he was having a dinner party downstairs with friends and uh, he thought I'd been watching match of the day <laughs> and I think he was a bit disappointed when he found out it was Eurovision Dat kan ook gigantisch afgaan de dirigent is Mike Dixon echt luister zelf maar Engeland I guess in the mid-90s in the UK, it slightly changed and it became cool again to like Eurovision. Uh, Gina G, Love City Groove, they were the British entries in 96 and 95, and they were hits as well, so people at school were talking about them. So it kind of became okay to like Eurovision. In 2000, I went to the Song of Death for the first time, and I, I suppose I was very kind of um, wise beyond my years, really, I think, looking back, because I was only 16, and I remember my mum and dad, you know, obviously were concerned with me wanting to go abroad on my own. My parents basically said, if I paid for the trip myself, got a summer job, paid for the trip, I could go, and I did. And I guess it was a kind of um, reflection of my kind of determination to go, that I got a summer job working in a supermarket. And uh, I think for like two pounds an hour or something at that point. Uh, that was summer 99, and then back in 2000 I went. Um, yeah, and I, I kind of met people uh, actually through a Eurovision website, so I wasn't going completely alone. And um, they had helped me to kind of um, meet other people as well. And then 2003, I decided to return to the contest, and I've been every year since. Then from there, a bit of a long story, but I um, did an undergrad dissertation in history, and it was on the history of Europe, but also the story of Eurovision as well, and how that's been reflected in the, the contest. It, it was back in 2004, and there was... We were all encouraged to think about quirky topics for our thesis. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't as good as it, 
I, w- I knew I was better at writing than I was at exams. And if we did a, a thesis, it meant that we would have one less exam. And I thought about doing something on the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then at that time, it had just been after, I think it was um, Estonia and Latvia, they'd just hosted it. So there was a lot of discussion certainly amongst the Eurovision community about these countries and about in the media about you know the rise of kind of former Soviet countries as tourist destinations even and so that's what spurred the idea on is looking at the politics of Eurovision. really enjoyed doing it and I, I remember friends of mine I remember the deadline to submit I think it was February 2005 and they were all rushing and you know I'd done mine basically that Christmas in the holidays because I enjoyed it I was really into it it was actually my supervisor for that suggested I did uh, a PhD and applied for a position after I graduate and I thought I would get laughed out and uh, I thought they would laugh me out of the room, but they didn't, and I got the scholarship. Now, it turns out that he was quite instrumental in defending that, because to the faculty, they would have been quite concerned, probably, that they were going to give a scholarship to someone to study Eurovision. And he was very good and very, very supportive of me and my research. And that was 2011 I graduated, and I had a chance meeting with a BBC journalist called Helen Fawkes. She had studied... Um, international relations, I think, and she was working for the BBC um, and she was based around Europe, often at the time of the Song contest. So in Kiev, she was there in 2005, she was in Moscow in 2009, and so she, she'd always kind of somehow Eurovision had always followed her to a place of work. And she encouraged me to try and sell myself to the media as a pundit, and she came up with this idea of Dr. Eurovision. And it's sadly, sadly Helen passed away um, last year, but it's I was always very grateful for that advice because it really separated me from other kind of people who were pundits, if you like, and it gave me a sort of unique selling point. I set up a website, set up a blog, Twitter account, didn't really think anything of it, to be honest, and I guess I was quite naive, really, looking back. Um, I got a chance opportunity to appear on BBC Three in the semi-finals, and then from there it kind of took off. Denmark, I think, is a hot favourite to win, but there's a few quirky ones this do you year. Think that's a, do you think it's a fair favourite, though? Do you like that I song? I don't really like the song, but, um, <laughs> you know, I tend not to like the most winners anyway. Um, I think Ukraine's one to watch. They've got one of the tallest men in the world who carries the singer on stage, plonks her in the middle, and then walks off. It's utterly bizarre. Is there anyone similar tonight that hasn't qualified for a long time? Well, San Marino have never qualified, so if they if they go through tonight, it'll be fantastic for them. But also Georgia, similarly, they they take Eurovision very seriously. And the other day, I was at the ambassador's residence, where um, the ambassador really did spoil us. Um, yes, unfortunately, there was not a Ferrero Rocher in sight. <laughs> do we know in advance what some countries are going to do with their votes? Is it as simple as that? Yes, I mean, Greece and Cyprus for every year give each other the maximum points. It can be quite predictable, and you can also predict the countries that won't vote for each other. So Armenia and Azerbaijan, they are arch enemies. And uh, it's interesting, in 2009, 41 people were called in for questioning in Azerbaijan by the government because they voted for Armenia. Now, it just shows you how seriously some countries do take Eurovision. Now, I'm still trying to get at the heart of what turned Paul into Dr. Eurovision and that initial inspiration moment, if you like. I remember as a child standing in front of my mum's bedroom mirror and playing 
Eurovision presenter. So what was it for him? In terms of those early days, I remember it really wasn't until Gina G and I'd say Love City Groove came along in the mid-90s that I felt comfortable saying to my friend at school that I watched Eurovision because I knew that growing up it wasn't really the sort of thing that was going (laughs) to win you many friends. I think um, it's something certainly in the UK that everyone has grown up with um, and it's very much, it gave me a connection to my parents really because they would say things like, you know, about Eurovisions that they used to watch as a kid and it really allowed me to kind of, I guess, tap into their youth and, you know, they would tell me about songs like Bum Bang Bang and stuff that they were on holiday and they would, that was playing in Spain and I think um, that's... For me, it's kind of like a fond nostalgia, really. And it was just good fun. I remember my cousin and my sister, and we would, you know, be watching it. And I would always probably be more interested in the songs, whereas my sister liked the voting and things like that. Um, so I think it was just a, a unique event, and I was just totally captivated. And I used to really like look forward to it every year. And that's when I started properly following it. And as, I guess it goes in line with being on... It goes hand in hand with being online. You know, we got the internet in our house in like 98 and that's when I immediately started getting Yeah, and it was dial-up and it was very slow and I remember if someone phoned it would cut you off and <laughs> it's, um, but it immediately connected me to a community and I thought, this sounds a bit ridiculous, but I thought I was the only one that had this passion and that I was somehow kind of a bit weird and I found out there's lots of people out there who have the same passion, some more so, um, in fact a lot more so. so um, yeah, it was a kind of uh, strange time growing up, really, because I, I knew that Eurovision was something that I wanted to be part of somehow, but didn't quite know how to get there. Favourite Eurovision moment? I think my favourite moment is when Turkey won in 2003. I was there in the audience, I loved the song, and it was also the first time, really, that my favourite won. Favourite Eurovision song? Favourite Eurovision song? I think it's Johnny Logan's Hold Me Now, but I'm not sure. That also changes. Sometimes it's Neve Kavanagh's In Your Eyes, but I, I think there's so many that I could, probably couldn't choose just one. The winner this year? Ooh, I'm normally rubbish at picking the winner, but I think the winner is going to be... I think the Czech Republic is going to win because I think it's modern, it's quirky, it's memorable. Israel, I think, has a good chance, but I'm not sure if it's uh, something the juries will go for. This being the Pushkin House podcast, after all, I have to ask a little bit about Russia. So I wonder what Paul's opinion is on Russia's performance in the contest so far. 
Yeah, I think judging from the Russian people that I know, I think their attitude towards it is quite similar to kind of a Russian psyche in general, really. If you think about it, a lot of people are supportive of a strong Russia and they like to see Russia succeeding on the world stage. So I think Eurovision is an opportunity for that. You can definitely see a real difference between the Russia that entered Eurovision in the mid-90s compared to the one now. It seems like a hungrier country wants to win, I think because it wants to stage the event again. When they staged the event in Moscow in 2009, it was like something we'd never seen before. I mean, it was out of this world, it was world-class, and I think they'd want to top that. Um, and what we saw, certainly around that period, was a lot of new countries winning that were really keen to not only win, but also to actually host the event. Azerbaijan was a really good example. And it was called almost like, it was like an arms race almost to see who could outdo each other each year. Um, and Norway scaled it back a little bit in 2010. I think that was probably wise because it seemed like each country was trying to spend more and more and that wasn't necessarily in the best interest of the contest. But I would say that Russia uses it as a kind of a way of, uh, I think, reflecting a resurgent attitude towards Europe. In terms of um, the, the, the future, I mean, di diplomacy in Europe, I think Eurovision actually can play a role there. And the special thing about it is it's the one night of the year where countries put aside their differences and take to the same stage. You've got Ru Russia, you've got Ukraine, you've got Azerbaijan, Armenia, Russia and the UK. You know, so there's a lot of um, political tensions that are going on in Europe. And for that one night of the year, technically, they put them aside for the show. And I think that's actually something very special. Any suggestion on, on, on what outro we should use for this podcast, what Eurovision what song we should, we should play? Well, I think uh, an app song to end on would be one called Don't Play That Song Again, which was the UK's entry in 2000. And the reason why I would suggest that is because that's where I met uh, the lady who sang it. She was a UK entry called Nikki French. And I was a big fan of hers, actually. And she had a hit in the 90s. And that was the soundtrack to my kind of youth. It was called Tote the Tips of the Heart. It was a dance cover of Bonnie Tyler's song. And I met her at Eurovision. And over the years, I've got to know her very well. We're actually really good friends. And she's come to visit me. I go to visit her. And I feel very lucky. She's one of my closest friends now. And that's because of Eurovision. And also, I guess, you know... <laughs> If you stalk someone for long enough, they can become your friend. But um, but yeah, we're, we're good mates and I've always supported her and I've always felt really sorry for her that she didn't do better in Eurovision because she's a, she's a great singer. Uh, but just on the night, I, it just wasn't... Perhaps it just didn't come across as well as it did in other shows. Um, but I still listen to the song, I still love it and it takes me back to a very happy time in my life. In that case, we're using it and <laughs> here it is. However, definitely do play the Pushkin House podcast again. Subscribe, rate and share your thoughts, not only on this episode, but on all of our previous episodes available online and wherever you get your podcasts. The Eurovision Song Contest Pride, Passion and Politics event with Dr. Paul Jordan takes place at Pushkin House 
on May the 9th. Tickets are still available. We'll see you there. And until next time.